0: Blessings in Jesus, dear friends. Thank you so much for joining us midweek Bible study from Oriel Ministries. I've just returned from Ireland, and the Lord indeed blessed us both in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland. We had a good meeting in Donegal town in Donegal, and we had fantastic meetings in Belfast at Orangefield Crescent. Um, They were probably the best attended meetings we ever had. Not that I'm making numbers the barometer of blessing, but a lot of people did come because they watch us on, on Internet and on Morial TV and on RTN. So it does have something of an impact. The meetings were very, very good. I believe God bless them. Certainly, they were uh, well attended, better than expected. Uh, more than twi- The opening meeting was more than twice as many as the pastor expected, more than twice as many. So people are coming, and they're coming largely because of what they're seeing on More Real TV and on RTN. In any event, on the 28th of November, Sunday the 28th, I will be in the north of England, the north of England, near Manchester at Hattersley Baptist Church with Pastor Mark Jackson, Mark Jackson, of course, directs Morial's ministry in India, and I will be there with Pastor Mark Jackson at Hattersley Baptist Church, and that's located right off the M57, close to the motorway, in on the east side of Manchester, and it's at 3 Melandra Crescent, 3 Melandra Crescent at Hattersley and Hyde, which is just on the western, I'm sorry, eastern outskirts of Manchester. Hattersley Baptist Church in Hyde, Three Melandra Crescent is just off the M57, and that'll be in the morning at 10.30 a.m. Same day, 28th of November, I'll be at a morial affiliated church in Winsford and Cheshire at New Life Christian Fellowship with Pastor Malcolm Betts on the High Street in Winsford, Cheshire at 6.30 p.m., in Winsford, New Life Christian Fellowship. Hope we see you then. In any event, let's go to the Lord in prayer for tonight. Heavenly Father, we come before you thankfully and prayerfully, knowing apart from you, we can do nothing. We marvel, Lord, at your grace and stand astounded at the truth of your word, especially at a time when these prophecies you've given us are being fulfilled. I pray, Father God, that you would be glorified tonight, your people edified, your son's body built up to stand in these times, and to stand as witnesses to the lost while there is still time. Be with us, Lord God, now, in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're continuing with our series of Messiah and prophecy in the books of psalms from the Hebrew canons, and we're only focusing on psalms that have some messianic prophecy or some reference conspicuously to Jesus and his teaching or something to do with prophecy concerning the end times. We're only looking at those psalms from those aspects, and tonight we're up to Psalm 49, the 49th psalm. This psalm concerns one of the great teachings of Jesus. But the Messianic reference to the psalm is in the middle at verse 15. And it says, But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And of course, Jesus on the cross says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He was delivered from the power of Sheol. He preached the gospel to the faithful saints of the Old Testament who entered eternity with him, and he was, of course, resurrected. The psalm was literally fulfilled. But it stands in a context that makes it the alternative to something that fallen man will naturally trust in for some kind of sense of eternal security or safety or life. We talked about this before. It is the nature of fallen man to look to the things the world considers to be wealth and power to secure their eternal destiny. Excavations in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt or inside of the pyramids, you see, They were storing treasures. They wanted to be able to take their wealth with them. They were thinking that their wealth could even give them favor with the gods of Egypt who were pagan idols in the afterlife. Fallen man has always had this sense where they trust in riches. Somehow, because riches seem to bring security and bring power in this fallen world, they imagine the same can somehow be true in the world to come. At least that's their faulty reasoning. They have nothing further or nothing other to believe in. And so this psalm very much matches the teachings of Jesus on this issue. Let's begin in verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Now this is a psalm to the sons of Korah a choir director, it's musical. But hear this, all peoples, in the Vulgate, it's something not exclusive by any means to Israel and the Jews, but is inclusive of them. Hear this, all people, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor. Well, if wealth is the perceived key to salvation of the rich, what do the poor have? So the psalm speaks to the false security of the hads and the resulting insecurity of the have-nots. My mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express, express my riddle on the harp. Now that term riddle is not something mystical or Gnostical. It means a deep saying, a deep saying. Um, Solomon knew the words of the wise and their riddles. I only mentioned it in passing, but Daniel tells us the Antichrist will know it. The Antichrist will know it. It's one of the things making him so dangerous is he will have a deep understanding of the Scripture. That is one of the things that'll make the Antichrist so dangerous, he'll have an understanding of these deep sayings. We deal with this in the book, Shadows of the Beast, and I bring out the Hebrew and Aramaic words and what they mean. Nonetheless, let's continue. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth, and boast in the abundance of their riches. The enemies of King David in this particular situation were the house of Saul, who controlled the national treasury, who controlled the wealth. It is not simply the rich oppressing the poor. It is very, very specific. Now understand this. No matter what people tell you, no matter what people tell you, the poor will always be with us, and in the fallen world, the rich will always exploit and oppress the poor. That will not be true in the millennial reign of Christ, but in a fallen world, there will always be poor people, and the rich will always exploit the poor. Let me explain how this works. They will always do it. There have been people who've tried to rise up and the uprisings of man to correct these social injustices have either failed or simply replaced one evil with another. You can go back to the rebellion of Spartacus in Rome, the slave uprising. You can go to the French Revolution. Vive la proletariat, vive la France, vive la République. Um, what happened on the ballot and Robespierre was the reign of terror. It unleashed something worse than the royal family in the Tuileries with King Louis and Marie Antoinette. It was something much worse. They promised liberation. Well, just think of the Czars in Russia. Uh, they lived like gods. Most of the people lived like peasants. Most, okay? But did the Bolshevik Revolution make things better? No, it did not make things better. In fact, under Stalin, it made things worse, much worse. Man's efforts to redress injustice and economic inequality will never, ever work. It cannot work apart from Christ. Now, we can understand God's principles in this man-made mess, Man made this mess under the influence of Satan with the fall. The world was in the power of the wicked one. It's a mess. Man's efforts to redress or correct it in a Christless manner manner, will always, always be doomed to fail. It'll simply never work. You're not going to correct it. After the abolition of slavery in the American South came Jim Crow. And then there was the maltreatment of the Irish labor and the Chinese labor in in the northern states that fought against slavery. Well, a black slave had a capital value. You didn't want to send black slaves into coal mines, but you could send the Irish in there. If there was a cave-in or an explosion and mining was not as advanced then technologically in terms of the engineering and extraction as it is now, they'd send the Irish in there because their lives didn't matter. A Black had capital value. No matter what people talk about justice and freedom and liberation, Black Africa talked about liberation from European colonialism. Every one of those countries is in a worse mess now than it was under the British or French, every one of them. They don't correct anything. It never corrects anything. Man's efforts to address and redress and correct injustice will fail. The only way there is a solution to the problem of social injustice is in Christ. No Christ, no redress. Now, in Old Testament Israel, God, knowing that there'd always be poor people, made provision for them. Do not harvest the corners of your fields and so forth. Uh, God did not allow slavery. He only allowed indenturism. At the year of Jubilee, they had to go free. God did not allow you to expropriate someone's land because they owed you money. You could take the land, use the produce of the land, agriculturally or whatever, to Regain what was owed you, but at the year of Jubilee, that land had to be returned to the family whose it was. God did not allow mortgage foreclosures. God did not allow hunger. God did not allow those things. Now, we said there'd be poor people. In Old Testament Israel, there would be poor people, as there was in every society. But there would not be hungry and impoverished people. There would not be hungry and impoverished people. The land was the Lord's. They could not be dispossessed from what God distributed through the tribes by Joshua to the families and clans. The apportionment of Joshua always had to be sustained. The land had to go back in Hashanah Yovel, the year of Jubilee. God made certain rules and certain laws. And when these were violated, it was considered to be a terrible sin. We read this in such prophets, particularly as as the Book of Amos. So we have this reality of people going on about social injustice and economic inequality. It's like anything else in a fallen world. It was not God's idea. Biological death was not God's idea. Illness was not God's idea. Social injustice was not God's idea. Maternal pain and maternal labor, delivering a baby, that was not God's idea. God wanted none of this. We bought it on ourselves with sin under the influence of Satan, who is the God of this world. Now, unto salvation, God intervenes in this, but it's not a mess of his making. It's a mess of our making, and apart from the devil, we have no one to blame but ourselves. And among those evils includes evils of social injustice, economic inequality. So it goes. Remember, nothing fallen man has ever tried outside of Christ, has ever, ever corrected injustice. It has only replaced one evil with another, but it's never really worked. You have to apply biblical principles to the situation. Let's look. Fearing the days of adversity, the iniquity of my foes surrounds me those who trust in abundant risk and wealth, those who boast in abundance of their riches. I'm not making a political statement. I'm simply stating a fact. There is a trend towards socialism in the Western world today, particularly the United States, but it's not real socialism. When I was a hippie, and we rebelled against the establishment, and I I was a radical socialist in my youth. I'm not now, but I was then. We were against the bansters of Wall Street. We were against the corporate aristocracy. Today, in the so-called quest for social justice, woke and all this kind of stuff, it's funded by billionaires like Soros. The media is controlled by Dorsey and Zuckerberg and, 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 and Bezos. It's not socialism. It's not communism. It is monopolism. Monopolism. They may be in control of the government through financial means and they may be forcing socialistic policies on the people, but the power elite will always have the money. In Russia, it was the Politburo. They simply replaced the czars with the Politburo. Feudalism, capitalism, socialism, they all have injustices. You're not going to change the nature of the world by changing any economic system. You're going to change the world through faith in Jesus and living by God's principles. Nothing else can possibly work because Satan is in control of it. And so it goes. They trust in their wealth. They boast in the abundance of their riches. It's what they have a confidence in. I read an interview about a month ago with Elon Musk, possibly the wealthiest man in the world, the visionary founder of Tesla. He was asked if he believed in God, he said no. Well, what does he believe in? We know what he believes in. The more wealth somebody has, the more confidence they tend to put in it if they're not under the Lordship of Jesus. But ultimately, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. It doesn't matter. You put the wealth of Zuckerberg. You put the wealth of Dorsey. You put the wealth of Bill Gates. You put the wealth of all of these people together. They cannot save one soul. They cannot save one soul from heaven. Neither can they save their own.
1: Not even one, but the simplest Christian. The simplest Christian.
0: Not a person of means not a person of power. The simplest Christian can preach the gospel, can witness, can tell people the good news of Jesus. The simplest Christian in the world with the most lowly position in the world, someone with a menial job but a real faith, has more eternal power, more power of eternal significance than moguls and tycoons and the wealthy people of the world. Much more. You can do something they cannot do. This life is transient. This world is transient. One way or another, the day is coming. Either they're going to give up the ghost and find out money can't save them, or the Lord's going to return, and the world will be in such a state, they're going to know money can't save them. They'll have no power. Their gold, a non-corrosive metal, as it were, we're told in James,
1: the gold will become worthless. Doesn't matter.
0: But somebody with a faith in Jesus, they can save their own neck, and by all means save some. They can be used by God to save the neck of others. As we're told in Daniel, the wise man delivers souls. They can't do it. Remember, the world uses people to get money. The world uses people to get money. God uses money to get people. The world uses people To get power. God uses power to get people. When God endows wealth and power to a believer, it is always to get people. More of that in a moment. Let's continue in verse seven. He can't redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Only one person could pay the ransom. That was Jesus.
1: Only one person who dies a
0: criminal's death, the only sinless man there ever was, God himself, who becomes a man, takes our sin, and in God's sight, he's worth more than all the rest of us, because we all have sin. One can die for all, of course, as we know, the just for the unjust. This guy, skilled tradesman maybe, a carpenter, but not a noble. He and he alone can ransom. The wealthiest people in history cannot ransom one soul, including their own. For the redemption of his soul is costly he should cease trying forever. In other words, it is so expensive that Jeff Bezos couldn't afford it. It is so expensive, Bill Gates can't afford it. It's so expensive, Mark Zuckerberg can't afford it. It's too expensive they haven't got that kind of money. They can't buy anything that's going to last forever. And to God, the only things that matter are the things that last forever. And everybody is going to discover at some point, the only things that matter are the things that last forever. If it doesn't last forever, it only has a temporary value. You can buy a cheap suit, and it's going to last you one year. And it's going to turn to threads. You can buy a handwoven tweed suit. It'll
1: last you a lifetime. It's worth much more.
0: But it will never, ever stop being a good suit. The garments of salvation are like that. They will never, ever, ever stop being the top fabric. But they're expensive. No billionaire can afford them. There's only one person who can afford it. And he has to buy it for you and give it to you for free or you can't get it. Well, that's quite a perspective. Verse 10, sorry, verse 9, that he should live on eternally that he should not undergo decay. Again, a messianic prophecy, thou will not suffer thy holy one to suffer decay. Jesus rose from the dead, no rigor mortis, no lividity. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless are alike. They leave their wealth to others. The smartest people there have ever
1: been wind up dead. Einstein is dead. Dead is dead. Doesn't matter
0: how smart they were. It only matters that they have a faith in the true way of salvation. Otherwise, no matter how smart they are intellectually, they're stupid. I have met people... Christians who were born mentally handicapped. They do not have a high aptitude, but they are capable of something called a simple childlike faith. I was talking to a lady in Northern Ireland the night before last, dear lady battling cancer, married to a nice guy. But they have four sons. All four sons are severely mentally retarded. I'm talking people in their early 30s with the minds of three-year-olds. But they didn't know it until it was a, a congenital condition, genetically obviously controlled or genetically induced, that you don't know it it's not diagnosable until they're maybe five, six. So they had more children not knowing the reality they found out. And she has to treat these guys like little kids. I've known Christians who have Down syndrome children. Now I tell people like this the following. You're facing a challenge in this life and in this world that nobody envies. You have as your first and foremost ministry from the Lord taking care of that child. Consume nearly all your time, nearly all your energy. You won't be able to do a lot of other things in the church or whatever. They're so demanding, and God has laid that on you. And you see the difficulty of it? And you are concerned about their future? You are carrying a tremendous responsibility and a tremendous burden. But let's look at the whole picture. Let's really consider their future. Jesus said, parents will turn against children and children against parents. Some of the most godly people in the Bible had reprobate unbelieving children. The prophet Samuel got his job because the sons of Eli were no good, and then Samuel's sons turned out to be no good. There's no shortage of Absaloms. I know so many Christian parents with children who are living with their partners outside of wedlock and having children out of wedlock, and they were brought up in the church. You know the truth? Their backs back students. They turn their backs on the Lord, on the faith of their parents, of the truth, they knew it. Now, raise up a child in the way you should go. You will not forever turn. You will not forever stray from it. These people do tend to come back to the Lord if they make a big mess of their lives and have nothing else to turn to. It usually requires a calamity in their life. And God will bring a calamity in their life. If you're praying for a backslidden child and they keep going into the world and don't wanna know, realize as you pray for them to return to the Lord or to come to the Lord, it may require a calamity in their life for that to happen. But better that than the alternative. Better that than an
1: Absalom. No, unsaved children, backslidden children,
0: very difficult. And then you have grandchildren who are not being brought up in the ways of Jesus, very difficult. So I would say to those Christian parents, whom the Lord has entrusted with Down syndrome children or learning-impaired children, intellectually underdeveloped children, I would say to them, you lucked out. Suffer the children unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the one who the Lord will not take their sin into account. Nobody says they don't have sin. Nobody says they don't have a fallen nature. But God does not take it into account until they can be accountable. And if they can't be accountable, God will not take it into account. Jesus said, suffer them unto me, for theirs is the kingdom. Be careful of the ultra-Calvinists who say that babies who die without having been regenerated or in hell, be careful. they are actually ultra-Calvinists who teach that lie, that cruel lie. No, if you were one of those Christian parents whom the
1: Lord has entrusted with such a child, I understand the pressure on you.
0: I understand your anxiety, your concern, and the stress. And I'm sorry. And I thank God for my own children and grandson, I look at that side. But in the broader picture, you have a guarantee no one else has. You know your child will be with Christ in the millennial reign, and they won't be handicapped mentally. You know your child will go to heaven. You know your child belongs to Jesus and always will, and nothing will change that. You have a guarantee. Now, it comes with a string attached. A rotten life in this world, more or less. Perhaps fleeting moments of happiness, but those pressures of responsibility, who could not have compassion for what you have to go through? Other people can't understand it beyond a limited point. But you have a blessing and an advantage others don't have. No. There's a simple childlike faith. That's all they need. No, babies can't get
1: saved. They will need to, but they
0: can't. If they give up the ghost, they're home free. But handicapped people, people of low intelligence, they are generally capable of a simple child-like faith that many smart people and many wise people, people of high intelligence, will so often reject. Your child may be mentally retarded. These intellectuals who don't believe are stupid.
1: Your child may be retarded.
0: But these academics
1: who don't believe the gospel, they're stupid.
0: They're stupid people. And they'll find out how stupid they were. Those who trust in wealth, they leave their wealth to others. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about this at length. I've known cases, I have known of cases, where people inherited substantial amounts of wealth and the next generation blew it and lost it. Not far, from me, was the British home and the main home of the person who had been the wealthiest man in the world at that time. John Paul Getty, lived in Surrey, England. Died.
1: Money went to his son. The guy was screwed up. It didn't do him any good. He died.
0: And not happily. And not after a happy life. You don't know what's going to happen to that money. You can't take it with you. And you don't know what's going to happen to the one who gets it. it Who's the wealthiest man in the world? But let's look. Here's how the super rich think if they're not saved their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They've called their lands after their own names. England is saturated with such places, castles, and manors, M-A-N-O-R-S, bearing the name of aristocrats
1: from centuries ago who built these palatial homes.
0: Today, oh, they may be there, and they may be called after the name of the founding aristocrat who built them. And they're either museums or owned by the National Trust. There have been many cases in Britain, many, where succeeding generations of heirs could not pay the high taxes on those properties. There are exceptions, such as the royal family, but they have certain laws exempting them from the tax liabilities. With a handful of exceptions, the United States does not have the architectural grandeur of Europe. The White House is interesting, and it's ornate but it's nothing like Buckingham Palace. If you went to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad, Russia, and saw where the czars lived or the Winter Palace, oh my heavens, you couldn't believe the wealth and extravagance. Unbelievable! There's not much in America like that. They have other kinds of houses that are impressive, But not with the kind of design that requires that kind of craftsmanship. You really need a kind of talent that hardly exists anymore. An exception would be some of the ones that are in Newport, Rhode Island, where the American robber barons of the 19th century would have summer homes for their yachts and and summer holiday vacations. And some of these still exist and they are on a standard with Europe. You've got reprograms in Beverly Hills and Bel Air in California that look as impressive, but they're not genuine. (laughs) They, They just don't have the same genuine caliber as the ones they imitate in Europe, by and large. Now, there are other things in the States that that are as good as Europe, but different, um, like Art Deco buildings and things like this, that Europe has never been able to match, like the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building in New York and things like that. There are things that are more American that are ornate, but if you're going back to Georgian architecture or things of that nature, or Duncan Fight Furniture, or things of that nature. It's European. Wealthy Americans would come to Europe and buy that stuff. John Paul Getty would come to Europe and buy that stuff. The Frick exhibit, Frick's Mansion in Manhattan, he'd just come to Europe and buy that stuff. The Americans had the money to buy it, but they didn't have the talent to build it. That talent doesn't even exist in Europe anymore. So these properties are there. But what are they? Anybody live in them? No, they're empty. They are museums. This was the Vanderbilt Museum from the Vanderbilt family. Yeah. And the next generation of Vanderbilt's went broke. Vanderbilt University. Yeah. There's people in the Vanderbilt family today would be lucky if they could pay the tuition. There are dynasties. But even the dynasties aren't taking it with them. Let's look. But the inner thought, the way they think, somehow they can perpetuate their legacy through their wealth. They try to do it sometimes through philanthropies. But if you look, it's what Psalm 49 says. It is through the architecture and design of their palatial homes. But it goes on. They can't live forever through their homes. But man, in verse 12, and his pomp will not endure. He's like the beast that perish. He's no more than a bear that dies in the woods. Doesn't matter how wealthy, how powerful. Once he's dead, he may as well be a dead turkey, unless he's saved. Verse 13, this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. (laughs) There's an actual TV show, I've seen part of it, where it talks about the lives of the rich and famous. And it shows celebrities and industrialists and people who have had this fantastic amounts of money and the salubrious lifestyles. And they talk about, and look at this, and this is a 400-foot yacht with two helicopter pads on it. They and it, it. And it's designed to inspire others to aspire to that kind of wealth. And that's what it does. It stir up the sin of covetousness. Well, the scriptures say, this is the way of the foolish. Not only those who trust in these things, who trust in riches, but who approve of their words. Verse 14, as sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. The upright shall rule. The upright shall rule over them, in verse 14, in the morning, and their form shall be for
1: Sheol. To consume The upright, those who have the
0: righteousness of Christ, will co-reign with him. They will rule. By the grace of God, we will rule. The meek shall inherit the earth. We have a Moriel teaching from the book of Ecclesiastes. I saw princes walking and fools riding on horses. The meek shall inherit the earth. There is a divine aristocracy. We will inherit the earth. We will not inherit the fallen world. The fallen world comes to destruction and self-inflicted ruination and ultimately divine judgment. But let's look the way of the foolish. They're appointed to Sheol. A coffin is waiting for them. A grave is waiting for them. A grave is not waiting for us. There's a wonderful hymn. I think it was probably composed by Black American gospel singers. I do not know the origin of this hymn, but it's a wonderful hymn. And it's it's so meaningful. Ain't no grave. Gonna hold my body down. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. There's no grave gonna hold your body down. The whale or the great fish had every year to take Jonah. If the grave couldn't hold Jesus, it can't hold you either if you're in Christ. For us, it's not about a grave. That's just a place where they put our body for renovation. No death for the believer, only life. But those who trust in this life and trust in riches as a way of salvation, that's what's waiting for them. They may have wealth and power for 20 years, 50 years. Those in Christ will have wealth and power for 1,000 years. And then things get really good. Who's the fool? the one who trusts in the 20 years or the 50 years or the one who trusts in the 1,000. Well, let's look. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. He will revive me, messianic prophecy. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. (laughs) When he dies, he carries nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. It doesn't matter how big he builds his tomb. It doesn't matter how big he builds his mausoleum. I've seen the Taj Mahal in India. What an impressive tomb.
1: But that's all it is. Is a tomb. I've seen the great period
0: of Teops in Giza, Egypt. I actually was in it. What an impressive tomb.
1: But that's all it is. Is a tomb. And I've walked through Bunhill Fields and London, England. Where
0: so many great evangelical preachers and hymn writers like Isaac Watson, the family of John Wesley, including his mother Susanna, and John Bunyan, are buried because the established church and the Roman church wouldn't allow their corpses to be buried in quote unquote consecrated grounds. So they took their Remains to Bunhill Fields. Still there. I've walked through it many times. John Bunyan Isaac Watson, Susanna Wesley, many others. Yeah, they don't have flashy tombs, just ordinary graves or sarcophagus. <laughs> But that's Beverly Hills. Those people are coming out of those graves. There's a cemetery in Queens, New York called St. John's. You wouldn't believe it. It's known as the Tombs of the Dons. It's where mob bosses, mafia dons, are buried. Catholic place. You wouldn't believe the money that these mob families spent on the graves of top gangsters. ivory and marble and the, the carved angels and all, <laughs> like they're in heaven.
1: Oh, boy. No. Nope.
0: It's a very ornate cemetery. I've been in Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and I've been in a cemetery in Los Angeles where Marilyn Monroe and <laughs> More movie stars than you can count are buried, Dean Martin, and now you, Efner. The grass there is like a green velvet rug. <laughs> it's so well maintained, it's so plush, and it's so lavish. It's a place of the dead. Now, spiritually, for most of them, it's a slum. Give me Bun Hill Fields in London any day. I want to be buried next to Susanna Wesley or John Bunyan. Those people are coming out. They're not down in Sheol. Don't be afraid when a man becomes rich. Verse 18, though he lives, he congratulates himself like Elon Musk. I pray that guy. He's just not interested from the way the interview looked. He's he's just not interested in God at all. They congratulate themselves. Though men praise you when you dwell for yourself, people praise these guys. They almost deify them or make them role models, not based on virtue, but based on money. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Well, there's a reason Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. (laughs) There's a reason he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he comes out glorious and immortal, he represents true riches. We come out glorious and immortal. In Christ, we represent true riches. We have a ticket out of the grave, and it's been paid for. And it's a free gift. We didn't earn it. We have a ticket out of there. Now, what about Christians who have some dash, who have some spondulics, who've done well in business or a profession or inherited money? Look with me, please, what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Most of you know this. We all know this. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourself churches upon earth where moth and rust destroy. The garments of salvation, spoken of by Isaiah. You've heard me say it. He clothed me with the garments of salvation, clothed me with the robe of righteousness. Moths can't eat it. No matter what other people try to hide their nakedness, their sinfulness with, moth will eat it. But the moths can't eat the garments of salvation. And rust destroy corrosive metals, and thieves break in and steal. In the States, those thieves are called <laughs> the IRS. <laughs> and then, what my favorite rabbi said, <laughs> Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Turn with me, please. The first Timothy,
1: chapter 6, verse
0: 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. It doesn't say that there will not be wealthy Christians, but it says, if you are one who is, Don't handle that mentally with the attitude of the wealthy people of the world. Yes, you have to meet with them and do business with them and sign contracts with them. But don't think the way they think. They are conceited. Don't you be conceited. They fix their hope on the wealth. Don't you fix your hope on the wealth. Don't think like they think. Don't consort with those people. You may have to go through what appears to be socializing with them for business reasons. That's the way business is done. But don't let socializing with business associates or clients be confused with Christian fellowship. We deal with them because we have to. We are in the world, but not of it. The uncertainty of riches but God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We are to set our hope on God. Now, when you have financial wealth, that becomes a challenge to faith. When you don't have financial wealth, you need faith. You need
1: God's help to get through things. When you don't need
0: his help in that area, The natural propensity is to trust in the wealth and to begin to think the way the world does and to become conceited about it and to fix your hope in it. It doesn't have to happen, but that's the propensity. It says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share. We don't own the wealth. The Lord does, as we always say in Moriel. And we're not the only ones, but we we, maybe the only ones who say it in these words. Every one of us, every one of us is incredibly rich. And every one of us is flat, broke, skint. It
1: doesn't matter how much money you have. Millions
0: or billions. We are only stewards of what belongs to Jesus. We are managers of it, not possessors. Everything we have belongs to him. Indeed, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains We just acknowledge that it's his, if we're really Christians. So, every one of us is flat broke, because we don't own anything. On the other hand, every one of us is incredibly wealthy, because we are co-heirs with Christ. To make the analogy of somebody who wins a billion dollars in a lottery, and the check is in the mail. They haven't received it yet, but on paper, they are still the legal winner of the lottery. Well, the Lord has given us the winning ticket. We may not have gotten the check and the mail yet, but don't worry. It's on its way. Jesus is coming.
1: Every Christian No matter how many figures are in their bank book, is flat broke. And every Christian, no matter how
0: flat broke, is incredibly wealthy. We are all rich and we are all poor. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation, as Jesus said in Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount, a good foundation for the future save up for your future forever is a long time
1: (laughs) save up for the future
0: forever is a long time there's only one way to take it with you there's only one way not building a pyramid like the pharaohs that didn't work there's only one way to take it with you not building a foundation For future
1: generations or an endowment. That may benefit others, but it won't benefit you. No.
0: In Christ, there's a way to take it with you. Hand the checkbook over to him.
1: Hand the bank card over to him.
0: Hand the deed of the property over to him as he guides and directs. Storing up treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may be able to take hold of that which is life indeed. One more verse. Something frequently overlooked. Money and Christians. Look with me, please, to the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans Chapter 12, I've mentioned this before, but it's a popularly overlooked portion of Scripture. Popularly
1: overlooked. Verse 8, or
0: let's begin in verse 5. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, okay? Okay. Different members have different functions, but we're all members of the same body. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, notice it's God's grace. Anything we have, we've been given. You're good in
1: business, God gave you that. You're a
0: talented musician, God gave you that. You have a formidable intellect, God gave you that. We have nothing we haven't received. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of this faith. Now notice the gift of prophecy requires faith, specifically. Are you sure? Do you really trust God that that is a message he's given you? That it's not from the devil, not from another spirit, not from your own mind, not, as Jeremiah said, from the futility and deception of your own mind. Are you sure? Are you positive? Do you have faith to know that
1: that is what the Lord is saying?
0: Well, if you don't, shut up. No, don't suppress the spirit. But don't prophesy falsely. I once heard this deceiver named Mike Bickle from Kansas City, actually on a recording, teaching people. We let what's of the flesh to flourish because we don't want to suppress the spirit. No, 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 no. You suppress what's of the flesh in order that what is of the spirit will flourish. He teaches the diametric opposite to what the word of God does. And they call it IHOP, International House of Prayers. The only IHOP I'm interested in is the International House of Pancakes, not his joint. Let's look. What does it say? So we who are members are individually one body and members individually one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us exercise them accordingly, if prophecy to the proportion of his faith. It's service in his serving, We don't think of the gift of being a servant, but there are people who have that gift gift that helps. I've known people who have that gift. I know a lot of women who have that gift. He who teaches in his teaching. If you have the gift
1: of teaching. He who exhorts in his exhortation. Pastors have to be able to exhort. Their teaching has to be
0: homilia. A teacher's teaching has to be mainly didaskin, expounding doctrine. But a pastor's teaching, although it will include doctrine, it has to be homelia. It has to be something that exhorts the body. Teachers have one kind of emphasis on their teaching, Pastors, another, even though there are some pastors who are good doctrinal teachers, and even though good Hamelia requires good doctrine. But I digress. Next, he who gives with liberality. I suppose, for want of a better term, you can call it. Philanthropy. Philanthropy, love of man. Well, I suppose we should call it Philo christianity (laughs) love of Christ. We love others in Christ, the gift of giving away money. There are people, there are people who the Lord shows them How to prosper in business, because he uses them to fund his work. Now, when I get something, or something comes to Moriel, and it's an old lady with a pension, sending five pounds or ten dollars, And she says, please send this to preach the gospel in Israel or to help the poor children in the Philippines. That five quid or that 10 bucks
1: is like 50 or 100 to other people. It's pocket
0: change. But it's a lot to her. And God doesn't see it as... Five or ten. We know from the widows' might, the parable of the
1: widows' might. God bless those people.
0: But you know, we had a situation one time where we had a girls' school in Tanzania, and Dave Royal and myself were down there, and we were what you call in Swahili Mzungu, white people, Mzungu. To talk about AIDS in the tribal culture of Africa was taboo. It meant you were not
1: just defiled, but certainly unmarriageable. So we had a
0: meeting with the girls. And Africans, tribal Africans, they love uniforms, school uniforms and skirts and jackets. They love that stuff. I don't know. They culturally love it. And in the school, we had basic things like dressmaking skills and basic computer skills, and obviously learning the English language and Bible, things like that. It was not. <laughs> It was not an Ivy League university or Oxford education. It was very basic. Good, but basic. And I'll never forget it. They didn't want the African teachers or headmistress to know it, because they were black. We were mizungu. They didn't care if we knew it. And we just wanted to meet with the girls and say, look, what what do you think? Can we do this better? What do you think we can do to improve it? And how can we help in things like this? So Dave Royal and myself had this meeting, and we wanted the girls to be able to speak freely, so we didn't have the teachers in the room with us. And a girl says to us, can you please do something to stop the rapes? I said, what? Can you please do something? She asked me to stop the rapes. And another girl says, yes, can you please help stop the rapes? I look at Dave Royal. I said, what do you mean? Well, I found out. Again, they didn't want the teachers to know because in the tribal culture, you don't do that. These were mainly Kakuyu girls from the Kikuyu tribe, but it was in the Rift Valley where you had Messiah and other tribes. The pagan tribes were raping our girls on their way to school from their villages. Now you have to understand the HIV rate in Africa is astronomical. They wouldn't tell anybody except us because we were white. And it, it's strange in Africa. It, it, it's, it's like a bi- East Africa is like a Bible belt. They have a religious culture. They all know evangelical speak. You know, they say, Jumbo, a Jumbo, Asani Santa, Buona Sifiwe, praise the Lord. They, they all know the Christian cliches in, in, in Swahili, and some of them know them in English. And uh, you think everybody was a Christian, and a lot of them are. More Christians than there are in the Western world per capita. But a lot of other problems. And we find out what was going on. I called the headmistress, and her name was Aisha. She was a university educated woman who was, say, from a middle class Muslim family background. And I brought in this pastor, and I said, Look, this is what's happening. And I said, I wanted all the girls tested for pregnancy and HIV. And we had a couple of them who were pregnant, which they wanted to hide. And a couple, they just would stop coming to school or something, because that meant they were used merchandise. And we had like three, I think, that, that were HIV infected. We had them tested. And we went to the police. The police wanted bribes. The police wanted bribes to do anything about it. Anyway, we got to come up with a solution. We prayed about it. Thought we're going to have to house these girls at the school. We're going to have to build rendezvous. Rendezvous are these, like, round huts with, they're very nice, like, with pastel colors, pink and green and blue. And they have a thatched roof, but it's they're well built for that area of the world and adequate. And you could put a couple of girls in each one. We need to get these rendezvous built quick so the girls won't have to go to and from the villages. We'll house them at the school. I needed like $40,000, $50,000 immediately. <laughs> immediately. Now it would cost a lot more to build those things in England or America or Canada than, or Australia than it caused in Africa, but it, we needed 40, 50 grand to begin accommodating the girls in, at the school and so on. And we had to build shower facilities and other things like this that we didn't have much of because they're going to live there. So we needed $40,000, $50,000. Moriel was not as established then as it is now. And we prayed and prayed. I had the money within 24 hours. Jesus gave me that money within 24 hours. And nearly all of it came from rich Christians. They had that gift of giving in Romans 12. Now I'll tell you three things about people who have that gift of giving that Paul talks about in Romans and in Timothy where he explains the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6. The first thing about people who have that gift is they're not arrogant or proud. By and large, unless you knew them, you wouldn't know they were affluent, unless you knew them. Secondly, if you took every penny away from them, they would not lose their faith. Their faith is based on Jesus, not the money. Thirdly, every one of them had severe trials in their lives, if not of a financial nature, of some other nature, where the Lord had ingrained in them to trust him, not in wealth. They had all gone through some kind of very heavy trials and testing in their lives, often in the area of finance, but Sometimes other things. I've known believers like that. Nothing wrong with the money, but there's something wrong with us. We say this. Nothing wrong with sex. There's something wrong with us. Nothing wrong with power, but there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with us. And so we see in Psalm 49, the Psalm to the sons of Korah. Prophecy of Jesus, God will redeem my soul from Sheol and receive me. No money can buy that. When Jesus said, Father, into thy hands, I command my spirit. The best thing that can happen to any of us, unless we're here, of course, at the rapture, which is a possibility. When we draw our last breath, we can say, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit because of your son,
1: because of his riches,
0: in which I shall now share. Silicon Valley can't give you that. Wall Street can't give you that! Hollywood can't give you that! The world cannot give you that. Had a guy I knew not well, but I knew I took drugs with him and stuff like that. Not to name drop but He was the drummer of the Rolling Stones. And he died about two months ago here in England. And I remember, you know, getting high with him and everything like that. He had about 300 million. <laughs> had a farm out in Dalton, out in Devon and some other stuff. He had a very impressive collection of vintage automobiles. He had pretty much anything anybody could want materially. I wish I was sitting down with him again, but not at a party, smoking a joint. I wish I was sitting down with him again an open Bible telling him about the way of salvation all that fame all that fortune I don't know I don't know and he's not the only celebrity at anyway I don't want to sound like I'm name dropping or anything but you know uh, people who
1: haven't made in the world trust in the riches of the world.
0: And God says they are stupid people. Not money, but the love of money. Those people
1: are stupid people. They're stupid. They will not have eternal life.
0: No matter how much they have, they couldn't afford eternal life. At the hour they draw their last breath, they're going to be bankrupt. Flat, broke. At the hour when we draw our last breath, the big check has come in the mail. That's if you're smart. That's if you turn to Jesus and ask him to forgive your sins. That's if you don't trust in a fallen world. If God prospers you and blesses you in this world he's doing it to make you a blessing to others to finance missions and evangelism and so on okay that's just another gift same as the gift of teaching or the gift of prophecy or whatever it's just another gift but to trust in riches to trust in wealth to try to build a legacy in a falling world that's going to come to destruction that is for Stupid people. according to the God, God's word, psalm forty nine that kind of thinking is for stupid people. What the Lord is saying to us is, don't be stupid.